0: All right, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we're thankful to uh, come together in the name of Christ centered around one thing. And we pray that uh, that thing, that is that person, the person of Jesus Christ, would be exalted this morning in our worship and our teaching. And we pray that we would continue to humbly consider these things as we finish up con- uh, objections to the doctrine of election and move on to perseverance, uh, that you would be honored and that uh, our minds would not merely be instructed with information, but they would, that we would be encouraged, and ultimately that we would be encouraged uh, to worship. So be with us during this time, as you have been so faithful uh, to be so in the past, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we, uh, like I just mentioned in my prayer there, we are going to finish up objections to election this morning and uh, continue on in the uh, 1689 to the doctrine of perseverance. Uh, but let me refresh your memory as to where we left off. Uh, we were talking about the two wills of God. Who was here last time, by the way, just so i to get a raise of hands. Great. This is why I'm rehashing this. We talked about the idea in response to this objection that God has actually two wills. Wills are two kinds of wills, and this is really, really important so either if, you, if even if you were here last time it 's great to get a, a recap of this one. Uh, we talked about theologians calling it two different things it 's been called the, the declared will versus the decreed will, the sovereign will versus the prescriptive will, the hidden will versus the revealed will, um, whatever and the idea basically is that there is one will that it, Depicts God's disposition, what he wants to see happen, moral prescriptions uh, revealed in his word. And then there is another will that God sovereignly accomplishes in the world. And at one level, those two things can sometimes be in conflict. And this is not some kind of clever sleight of hand. This is not some kind of clever sleight of hand. Scripture bears that out. It does seem to be that God has a will that cannot be resisted. Um, he does what He wills in heaven, Romans 9. Who can resist His will? There are plenty of passages that talk about God's will, and when God has purposed to do something, it's going to happen. Like, it's over. No one can thwart God's will. And then there are other passages that says people can thwart God's will. Only those, Matthew 7, who, uh, the, those who are saved are the ones who does the will of my Father in heaven. Those are the ones who are going to be saved. Not all of them say to me, Lord, Lord, Remember? but but only those who do the will of my Father in heaven? Well, that's not everybody. So clearly not everyone does the will of the Lord in that sense. Uh, Jesus' ministry sure seems like he desires people to repent and believe the gospel, seems to reflect the will of God. Come to me, all who are weary. Does everyone come? Does everyone repent? No. So in other words, and you go back last time, I gave a few more examples. There are There seems to be in Scripture... Both a will that is, you might say, behind the scenes, and then a will that is declared in front of the scenes, in front of the curtain. Um, so he, he, God says that he does not will the death of the wicked, and yet he says he will destroy the wicked. And then probably the one that most people are most familiar with, and that is the largest affront, I think, to our intuitions, is the case with Pharaoh, where God tells Moses, and this is the declared will here, we usually don't get a picture of this behind the scenes, will but he goes and he says, "Tell Pharaoh to what? Let my people go." Laura exactly, "Let my people go." This is what this is God's discipline. I want you to tell him to do this. That's a prescription. That's what I, I want you to tell him how I want him to behave. But then, what does he say he's going to do? I'm going to harden his heart so that he doesn't do it. Okay. And that gives people sometimes like theological gas. But that's just the reality of the tension we see in Scripture between these two wills. It's not something that anyone made up to impress the philosophers. It's just what the Bible seems to suggest. A will uh, that cannot be thwarted and a will that can be thwarted. Uh, And should it be objected that this makes God schizophrenic or something like that, remember there's nothing incoherent with uh, understand it. even in our own as creatures it's not incoherent I gave the example of going to the masters uh, last time someone asked me hey do you want to go to the masters got tickets whatever because I never get tickets um, but I couldn't go because Shanti was not there we didn't have childcare, and I said well I got to watch my got to take care of my kids sorry bummer have to miss out imagine that person said oh, see you didn't really want to go Well, no trust me <laughs> Trust me, I did. Trust me, I did want to go. Okay, well, then why didn't you go? Well, because there was an overriding consideration. Like, I want to take care of my kids. I want to be a responsible father. And Paul even suggests something like this in Romans chapter 9. He says, what if, and then he says, what if God was wanting to show His glory through His justice, through these objects of wrath, and show that to the object of His mercy? So there's a weightier consideration there. So if someone asks me, if someone asks me, does God desire everyone to be saved? I always answer from within the two wills framework. I say, absolutely he does. Absolutely he does. And then there's a sense in which absolutely he does not. And that's not double talk. That's in one sense, yes. And in one sense, no. And they're both genuine. And it's not a kind of genuinely, I genuinely want to go to the masters. I genuinely am not going to go, and for, for reasons that I'm not being forced, I genuinely do not want to go. There's an overriding consideration both are there. Um, let me just make one comment about what is sometimes called the permissive will of God. This is a kind of a variation on this that, that sounds good, and it's trying to save God from being culpable for sin. Of course, a very laudable task. Uh, but any, un, under any robust model of sovereignty, I don't think it works. Like, there's not the idea that God is sovereign over things, and then he kind of takes his hands off and just kind of lets the world run and hope it works out, like, for that period. I'm just permitting it to happen. It's kind of fishbowl sovereignty. You define the bowl, put the fish in, and it goes wherever. That's not it. The only way I think it's plausible to talk about The permissive will is what Paul Helm calls active permission, and that is essentially just the phenomenon of God permitting his declared will not to come to pass because he's enacting his decreed decreed will. So there's at no point God is passive. He's not just hands-off, you might say. Uh, He he, he is simply saying, "I I do desire all people to be saved, but here's what I desire more than that. To show my glory to the objects of my mercy by displaying wrath. Show them my manifold perspections in this, and so I'm not going to. So it's a both end. Um, if you weren't here last time, I understand that that pr- might sound like, if, especially if that's new to you, that that might have just sounded very odd. But go back, watch the last uh, Sunday school. I think it'll be more clear. But having said that, any questions immediately about the two wills, the two wills of God? Very important move in Reformed theology. And really, even in some cases, not reformed theology. Okay. All right. Let's move away from unconditional election to meticulous sovereignty in general for our two final objections. And these are the ones that everyone's heard. So I've saved the best for last, okay? I've saved the best for last. Here's the first one If God has predetermined every single detail, then He's the author of evil. God is not the author of evil, therefore, He is not predetermined. Everything, of course, fallen to make it exact, every single detail. A few things. Uh, so first of all, the 1689 Confession explicitly clarifies that God is not the author of evil, meaning, to be clear, that he's not culpable for sin, okay? Um, but there is a sense, by the way, in which I'm fine calling God the author of evil, and that's the sense in which God is just the author of the story that we're living in. Um, in the same way, Shakespeare is the author of Macbeth, or that J.K. Rowling, or Rowling, how do you say your name? Anyone know? Rowling, Rowling? Who says Rowling? Who says Rowling? Y'all are all wrong, okay? it's Railing. No, 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 no. Um, we're going with Rowling because more hands uh, went up for that one. Anyways, uh, so she, you know, she is the author of the Harry Potter series, and it includes evil. And so in some sense, on, on any Christian story of this large story of redemption, there's an author, and it's not you and I. It's not some animal in the dust. It's God. God's the author of everything in that sense. He's writing the story from beginning to end, from creation to consummation and recreation. Um, but here's the thing. You might, you, you might ask, does anyone think Shakespeare was morally responsible for the death of Banquo? Or if you don't even, if you don't know anything about if you've never read any Shakespeare, we'll use the the, uh, uh, the Harry Potter version, right? Does anyone think that J.K. Rowling is responsible uh, for the death of Harry's parents? You know? You might think that someone asking that question, like, doesn't understand what, something. Like, there's a fundamental category here, the person asking that question now now maybe if shakespeare or jk rowling stole that idea from another story and wrote it in like they're responsible for like theft of intellectual property or something but but you might think that when someone asks if shakespeare is responsible for the death of banquo or that if if jk rowling is responsible for the deaths of the people in harry potter all of them that they, they might, you might think that we're crossing the line between author and story in a way that doesn't make sense. Like it says the question itself betrays a fundamental misunderstanding about the qualitative difference between the characters and the author. And that is just another version of our creator-creature chasm. That's what I'm suggesting. When, when someone says, is God the author of evil... I'm happy on one sense to say yes, in the same way that J.K. Rowling Rowling is the author of the evil that happens in the book. But is that supposed to mean that she's evil because she wrote a book about that? In other words, she stands as the creator outside of the work. And the characters in her story don't even stand to cast a judgment on what she's doing. We're just talking about two different planes. Okay, and that is the creator creature chasm, or the author story, author, character chasm, okay? does that make sense? Does that make sense? someone well, God is it all right, good so so uh, when, that's what I want to suggest about a God being the author of evil at a large level, okay, Of course, he's the author of the story that we're in, but of course, that's not actually what people are wanting to hear. They're saying that because God is the author of every single detail in one sense that he is responsible for sin. and uh, But but God is not culpable for sin because he brings sinful choices about in a way that is compatible with his perfect goodness and personal responsibility uh, according to the way that he set up the world. And I've tried to give some, I'm not going to dive into the philosophy of it again. Um, but it means that what we can say is that because of how God has created He could not, for example, hold a pregnant woman responsible for the death of her unborn child because someone else pushed her down the stairs. All right? Because God has set up the necessary and sufficient conditions for moral responsibility. Person saying, What's the difference? In both cases, it was caused to happen as a part of God's plan. You know? One case, this woman, let's say one case, this woman just kind of uh, supermans down the stairs because she has evil intent. And another case, she was pushed. I mean, someone saying, you know, what's the difference? See, it's they're both the same. That doesn't that person doesn't isn't understanding that there's a there's a difference between the compatibility of moral responsibility and determining causes and the compatibility of moral responsibility and any determining causes whatsoever. The whole point of the – we talked about semi-compatibilism is to say what matters isn't alternate possibilities. It's how in the actual sequence of life those decisions and choices are made that renders people morally responsible. And in many cases, we don't struggle to identify those. If someone spikes my drink and all of a sudden I'm blacked out and I'm doing things I don't even even know my own name, and I'm like, what just happened? Went into a coma? We're not going to hold someone responsible. Uh, for that someone inserts a chip in my brain and starts manipulating me we're not going to hold me responsible for my, my, uh, I don't have any ownership of my own actions and certainly philosophers differ on what it means to be uh, to have ownership of your own actions be the, the source of your actions that's where all the debate is but the point is here that uh, God is bringing things to pass in a way that he is not culpable because he's bringing them to pass in a way that's consistent with how he has set up Necessary and sufficient conditions for moral responsibility. Okay? The final thing is this. God brings about evil in a way that on scale results in good. On scale results in good. And that doesn't mean that we can use that as an ethical principle like utilitarianism, where the, where the ends justify the means. That's not it. But the, the scope of God's intent for evil is greater than the creature's intent. And no more is that clarified, excuse me, nowhere is that clarified better than in Genesis 50-20. Who knows Genesis 50-20? Anybody know? Yeah, yeah, that's it, that's it. So we're talking about Joseph here. Remember the story of Joseph? If brothers kind of leave him for dead in a ditch, sell him into slavery, too bad for you, Joe they head out. He goes to Egypt. He's a slave. He's in prison. He rises up to become Pharaoh's right-hand man over uh, the, the kingdom there. His brothers come down there because there's a famine. They come before him. They don't recognize him because he's all big time now. He's big time. And he's that moment where he's like, Hey guys, I'm Joe. You know, remember me? Yeah. Looked a little different last time I was down in a ditch. The things are different now, you know? And, uh, and of course, they're crying and he, he, he tricks, and he puts some stuff in the, the youngest brother's bag on the way back. But anyways, he, what he says is, in all that, he says what you intended for evil, right? That God intended for good, but both intended it, both intended it. The scope of God's intent was much larger and it was to save a whole people, right? He sent Joseph down there, store up a bunch of food to save people in the famine and save a whole nation. God's intent was larger. They intended it for this. God intended it for this, but both nevertheless intended it. So the scope of God's uh, intention in evil is much larger than ours. And oftentimes we're just not going to be able to see that. You know, We get that, we get that revelation like, you know, specifically from Joseph, but a lot of times we're going to have to be content with knowing that uh, whatever this particular evil was, that God intends it for a good that's far beyond the scope of what we'd really be able to uh, really be able to understand. We just have to believe that. So if we take the first premise of this argument as anything more than kind of poetic or flowery language, and we understand it to mean something like culpable for evil, then not only do we have a piece of kind of hidden philosophy that got snuck in here, but it's also, we have someone who is just dismissing the creator-creature chasm that I've tried to defend very strongly, and have now added the author character chasm to, to kind of um, communicate the same thing. And it's really not clear how this argument can be repaired without begging the question, without assuming the conclusion, okay? Uh, um, or, or, or at least believing one premise because only, 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 the only reason you believe one premise is because you already believe the conclusion. It's just not clear how you could repair that, okay? Okay. Um, I think that's all I want to say about that unless it was you, I could go down this rabbit hole for a long time in terms of it but I'm trying not to be very technical here. Any, any questions about kind of how I just responded to that objection which I know everyone has heard before. Kind of gave you three lines of response. I'm sorry? out. Right, yes. It turned out well. Yeah, I think so. I think it turned out well. Okay. Any other questions? Then what I said makes sense, or did that make your eyeballs roll in the back of your head? A yeah. little bit of both. It's okay. I accept that. I accept that. Okay. Let me let's let's uh, go. Let's switch over to the last one here. God has predetermined everything, then people, like Xbox-controlled robots or puppets, cannot meet the basic requirements for agency and moral responsibility. But people do meet the basic requirements for agency and being held responsible. Therefore, God has not predetermined everything. little case of application of modus tollens for you Jekyll people. What's the problem with this one? A lot of people, who's heard this kind of argument? Reject, uh, yeah. Okay, so most people in here have heard this. And I guarantee most people in here, I didn't ask, how many people have heard the last one that we just went over as well? People said it. Okay, vast majority of you have heard, heard these objections, which is why I wanted to give a little bit more robust response. If God has in one way or the other determined everything then are we like puppets or robots or whatever? The first part of responding to this objection is getting clear on the relevant part of the analogy. And this is where the whole thing is going to start to crumble. Because remember that analogical reasoning is only as strong as the relevant analogs. So let me give you an example of something that might be very misleading. Suppose I turn to Glenn and say, Glenn, you're like Adolf Hitler. And he nods, yes, in humility. No, I'm kidding. Um, and then I say, and, he, and let's, let's suppose he justifiably responds in outrage. No, I'm not. And I'm like, yeah, y'all both wore shoes. It's like, it's true, probably still a misleading analogy. Who says that's a misleading analogy? Pretty misleading. Yeah, pretty misleading. You might think that the relevant analog there is kind of not, maybe not present. So when, you, when we hear this, these kinds of analogies, we're trying to ask the question, what's the relevant part of this analogy? You might say something like this. In the case of, um, in the case of robots and puppets, in fact, let's just take the puppet. Puppets aren't created in the image of God, they aren't conscious, they don't have a will, Uh, they can't make decisions, they don't have reasons. Uh, I, I am and can do all of those things, so how exactly am I like a puppet? Same question with the robot. And here's what you're going to find. You're going to find, once you ask people what's the relevant part of the analogy, that it's just going to boil down to objecting to the idea that moral responsibility is comp- compatible with, with, with there not being alternate possibilities. It's just it, They're just going to be objecting to the idea that things could be predetermined and you'd be morally responsible. But that's the whole view. That's not an objection. Like You, you can't object to someone's view by saying, you know my objection to your view? your view like that that's just not it you know what they're trying to suck you in with here is some uh, analogies of things that are clearly being you know uh, um somehow manipulated in a way that that renders them not morally responsible but notice it's not like a puppet was ever not morally responsible either like there were sometimes the puppet was morally responsible but then there are some times, because of how things happen, where we absolve the puppet of moral responsibility. They're just not it's a category here. It's not even it's not even the same thing. So what you're gonna find out is when you when you peel the onion on this question, okay, um, people are essentially just saying that meticulous sovereignty is incompatible with moral responsibility. But that's the view. That's not an objection to the view. That's like my, That's the view the the, the the Reformed person is saying. That moral responsibility and repentance and belief before God as well as anywhere else is compatible with a robust sovereignty where God has in one way or another, a key clarification, uh, determined everything that will come to pass. And so uh, it, it re- the objection boils down to saying nuh-uh. Nuh-uh. That's it. It, it, it really is. Um, and, and it stands on some of the. It just kind of stands on a philosophical conclusion that they're not that, that isn't generally argued for. Okay. Any questions about how that reduces in the in analogical reasoning? I think a lot of people initially find this one really hard to respond to. Um, but but if you if you pare down like what's supposed to actually be the relevant analog here? How exactly am I like a puppet? Oh well, pup. Things are determined for a puppet. Right, that's my view, though. Things are determined for people. So, what's the objection? That's not an objection. You're just stating my view. And, and once you get down to that level, does that make sense? It doesn't make. Someone ask a question. Someone fabricate a question about that. Does anyone have a question about that? Surely not everyone can understand like at all of these points. Does anyone, does anyone like raise their hand in their heart or something? Does anyone? Does anyone yes. So, uh, yeah, well, uh, that that's more of a pastoral conversation, I would say. I would say, so, I mean, if someone, so let's just say, is this, am I talking about a believer or an unbeliever? Because this isn't usually, this is usually not the conversation you have with, like, in evangelism. This is like an in-house. Well, I haven't, I haven't yeah. 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 So let me, let me just say it pastorally. So here's how I would respond. First of all, I'd want to meet that person where they are in terms of their own lack of trust and just their unsettledness. You know, I'm so sorry. Like, I see what you mean. You know, in fact, it would be hard to trust a God um, when you couldn't see a picture of uh, what he was doing. But I understand that. Um, And yet, at the same time, I've been encouraged from the scriptures in a couple of places. And and the chief among them is the person of Jesus. A God who, according to Acts 2 and Acts 4, predetermined the death, the suffering, and justice for his own son. I would never do that for my son. I'd never give my son up for anybody. Everyone else would just have to die. Uh, But you see that he predetermines this. But he does it for a larger scope than what they thought they were doing. Or, for example, Joseph in Egypt. You see a picture of his brothers intending this thing for evil. And God intends the same thing, but it's, but it's for good. And so I think when it boils down to I'm, having, I'm struggling to trust, um, you know, what, as you think through it, is required for you to trust? What do you think? And then, that's how, and then I would throw, the person back to, uh, throw it back to them. Okay? And just let them talk about that. You know, what, what is required to, to trust just anything in general? And then what kind of picture of a good and a sovereign God can we paint to help this person trust a little bit better? Okay. You don't want when you when someone objects like that, you don't want to go first with the like just the hardcore logical theological answer because it will sound to them like you're blowing them off. Like you don't really care about their personal angst. You kind of want to meet them in that angst. Which most, which a lot of people, especially men, frankly, who love the the back and forth, are not particularly good at. But you want to meet them there, and then, kind of empathize a little bit, and then say, and here, and here's how I've been encouraged in the scripture in this particular way. Okay. Good question. What else? Yes. All right. So, watch Sesame Street. Yeah. Yeah. He's public. He is. How was I, like, I followed a script. I didn't think that the God was determined. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That same thing happened to Kermit in Sesame Street. How am I not a punk? Yeah, so, I mean, if I understand, so here's how I, here's how I would proceed. You certainly make a good point there about some relevant similarities. You know, it sounds like if I'm, if I'm listening to you correctly, what you're saying is that, um, uh, uh, that, that Kermit uh, was determined to do something th- certain things, right? And uh, that I was determined to do certain things. Is that right? Yeah. Okay, so help me understand uh, the, the, the problematic part of the, uh, of, the, uh, of the analogy when we're saying that I'm morally responsible. You, let me ask you a question. Did you think you were morally responsible um, when you decided to get out there and cut that wood and, and uh, you know, not be lazy? I i was going to be yeah, see, so you're responsible. Was Kermit responsible for anything? Yeah, so I mean, it seems like both of you are determined. One's responsible, one's not. That's my whole point, yeah. <laughs> he said, yeah, I guess that is true. Kermit was responsible, causally responsible, yes. But he was puppeted to every... yeah, okay. But do you see how do you see how I do that? You boil it down, boil it down. So what you're saying essentially is it boils down to saying both people are determined to act. One is actually clearly morally responsible. One's a puppet. What's the part of the analogy that makes me think that because of what happens to Kermit that I'm somehow not responsible? And there's not going to be an answer. It just keeps going back to Predetermined a predetermined course of action is incompatible with moral responsibility. That is the core of the objection. It's just dressed up with. In fact, I heard a philosopher the other day who I love said, "On this view, you don't have any more free will than a tree does to grow a branch." It's like, well, trees don't have trees don't have wills. There was never a tree that got forced to grow a branch, right? It's misleading. Well, what do you mean? Oh, you mean there were causal conditions that led to the tree growing a branch. Yes. And there's causal conditions that lead to it. Yes. Okay. So what's the problem? Where's the objection here? And it it just, it just doesn't come. This doesn't come. It comes, it does, but it comes on the the level of philosophy, not theology. It comes with an incompatibilist understanding of moral responsibility and determining causes, not from the, the Bible. And that's what you really just have to push to. Sounds like you hold to a philosophy where and then ask people to tease that out, and there will not definitely not be an answer because that rabbit hole runs deep. Okay, yes, sir. For this pension is borrow responsibility. and Are we capable of borrow responsibility? You know, like what you got here says: Can we meet the basic requirements? Yeah. Therefore, I think that we get into a problem because we understand that the world is lost, is mm-hmm. it is on its way to hell. Yeah. for you to know, a better terminology. All right, but if we take on one, and, and we, we think about what was said there, what God says about responsibility, He says that we are. That they do know it, that it is Mm manifest to them, that Mm -hmm. they are responsible, they are without excuse. Yeah. All right. If we take that right there, on faith, that answers the question. Mm. It answers the question of of whether we are morally responsible. It
1: answers the question of are we capable of making a better decision? Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. Because God has said that we are responsible. Yeah. Well, and so. So here's what they're going to say. I mean, the, the opponent, they're going to agree with you. They say, well, listen, everyone agrees we're morally responsible. Everybody in this discussion agrees with that. But the story you're telling about how God rigs things would make us not morally responsible. And that's how we know the story you're telling isn't true. That's kind of the way they would push. They would say, yeah, we both agree moral responsibility. But they're saying the story you're telling about God's sovereignty is incompatible with that. That's what they would say. That's the pushback. And I'm not saying that's compelling, but that's the move. Okay. Any other questions about these objections? Objections? I have a section in here to just ask. Are there any other objections that you have heard or that you want me to field as though I, I, I was engaging just off the cuff with someone? Yeah. Sure. So, I see this have a lot, especially on the line. It's going to like a car wreck. Nobody's drinking or anything like that. Everybody's going to be like a baby car wreck. Family dies. Yeah. 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 So it's a fine question. Uh, and But that really um, crosses into the problem of evil, right? The problem of evil. Uh, why, God, why, why, if God is perfectly good and perfectly powerful and all wise, is there gratuitous evil and suffering, right? How are those things um, compatible? Um, I actually sketched a very detailed. Oh, wait. I don't know that you were there. I, I, get, I provided a very detailed sketch of responding to the problem of evil at our, um, men's fraternal on God's power. I have that handout I can give you, but responding to the problem, evil will be a little bit outside of the scope of, of this right here. That's a lar- much larger consideration where we're talking about God's goodness or how, how that relates to, um, a larger story. So, very fine question, but notice in that case, you know, we're not talking so much about moral responsibility and human choice, we're just talking about, oh, you know, what, what why does a, why does why do earthquakes swallow people up, you know, suffering and, and uh, things like that. So, a great question, but it's gonna take us a little bit, it's kind of a, would take us in a different direction. Yeah. Yes, and then, and, yeah, and then you're gonna ask this, and then we have the same set of questions, it's like, well, Why was that person morally responsible? Well, under the appropriate conditions, they chose to um, consume and put other people in danger by putting themselves in a particular state and then getting behind a a wheel of a car. And so you have the same. So let me just conclude. I haven't, I've explicitly tried not to say what, what on the semi-compatibilist view are the necessary and sufficient conditions for moral responsibility. And I may show you a video and some of you are going to be like, oh, please, no, please don't show a Video of top-notch philosopher. I may show you a video teasing out this view, but um, what I would say that the, the 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 conditions for freedom, or I would just, and what I mean by freedom is just the ability to be morally responsible, is twofold. Number one, you have to be the source of your actions, and number two, you have to uh, you have to determine those actions, you have to make those choices in a way that's compatible with uh, appropriately responsive to reason. Okay. Appropriately responsive to reason, and I think that second category is why people do not tend to hold someone who, for example, is a pro, is profoundly uh, 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 I don't know is there a, I don't know the right word now, but back in the day it would have been profoundly mentally retarded or or a, a, literally an imbecile, someone who has a super super low um, IQ who who who's not even though he can he's he or she is the source of their actions, they're not re- appropriately responsive to reason. Um, now th- again i 'm sketching out a piece of philosophy right now, not the Bible, not mm. the Bible, but if you 're asking me how what 's the best story you can tell about determinism and moral responsibility, both being true, I think that's and, and what are the um, necessary and sufficient conditions for me being responsible. Um, as a, uh, uh, if there are determining causes, unlike being pushed down the stairs, it has to be caused in the right way. It has to be caused in a way that I'm the source of my action and in a way that I'm, what's issuing forth in my action is sufficiently re- appropriately responsive to reasons. Okay, that was extra. Um, um, uh, that might not even have made sense, but maybe someone was waiting for that because I've, I've intentionally not said it. Any other objections to any of these do you feel like when you look at these, you have a better handle on how you would reply after going through some of them? Yes, no, maybe. Yes, Tracy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or right, any more scenario? You mean like what I do with James or whatever? Yeah, yeah. Any more... Um, any more questions? Any more scenarios? Any conversations you got into where you got stuck? You know, anything to to say about this? Well, I'll just say if you happen to have questions, if you say, "Hey, I didn't really understand that one part of here," and I raised my hand in my heart, but that's as far as it got. Um, uh, uh, come, come, talk with me. I'm happy to to talk through these things uh, and uh, do the best I can. And some of these things are challenging, and I don't pretend to. In every single instant, (laughs) explain them perfectly. So please come and uh, be happy to help you. So, anyways, just to summarize here as we turn to perseverance, the vast majority of objections to election and meticulous sovereignty are motivated by, number one, preserving very intuitive, ordinary understanding of moral concepts, ignoring the creator creature chasm, and then letting certain, resolving certain intentions in scripture by letting one set of texts trump the others instead of just holding them right there in tension. Okay, You've got to hold the text in tension when, and, and just be content with uh, tension in your theology because that's what the Scripture presents. And when you try to massage that tension away, you're going to end up compromising one way or the other. That's what I'm going to suggest. So. All right. Going to turn to Perseverance. Perseverance from 17.1. I know it's a long one from the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. I'm going to read this for us, and you can read along with me. Those whom God has accepted in the Beloved, effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit, and given the precious faith of His elect unto, can neither totally nor finally fall from the state of grace but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved seeing the gifts and callings of God are without repentance from which source he, be- he still begets and nourishes them in uh, excuse me nourishes in them faith repentance love joy hope and all the graces of the spirit unto immortality and though many storms and floods arise and beat against them yet they shall never be able to take them off that foundation and rock which by faith they are fastened upon. Notwithstanding, through unbelief and the temptations of Satan, the sensible sight of the light and love of God may for a time be clouded and obscured from them. Yet he is still the same, and they shall be sure to be kept by the power of God unto salvation." where they shall enjoy their purchased possession, they being engraved upon the palm of his hands and their names having been written in the book of life from all eternity. Okay? Beautiful statement. Very well-crafted statement with a confession here, not surprisingly. They have a lot of well-crafted statements on the perseverance of the saints. Now let me see how I have this. Um, we've got four minutes here. Okay, let's read 17.2. and We're going to read 17.2 and I'm going to close before the text so, because I don't want to just read one verse and, and just stop. This perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father, upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ, and union with Him, the oath of God, and the abiding of His Spirit, and the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace, which, by the way, to be very clear, if you follow along, covenant of grace, according to the 1689, is not our Presbyterian brothers and sisters covenant of grace, starting in like Genesis 3.15, the kind of a supra covenant. The covenant of grace in 1689 is just the new covenant. It's the covenant where grace wins. They were trying to, of course... 1689 is two generations down from the Westminster Confession of Faith. And when you're trying to be different, you want to you change just barely what you have to change. And so the, you have the Savoy Declaration that kind of congregationalizes the Westminster Confession. And then the 1689 Confession baptizes the Savoy Confession. That's how you end up with this. But the, the language is preserved. They wanted to preserve as much of this language as possible. So, I mean, I think it's a little bit It feels to me a little bit like a sleight of hand, but I can get on board with it. They say, we we believe in the covenant of grace too. It's just the new covenant, which is a very different, of course, understanding of the covenant of grace from traditional covenant theology. Anyways, from all which arises, although the certainty and infallibility thereof, a a clause that almost made no sense because I interrupted myself. But uh, the idea of perseverance of the saints, sometimes called eternal security, is the idea that everyone who is truly redeemed, truly saved, truly justified ends up being glorified, okay? And perhaps it is only just, I will read one, and we'll come back to it. You've heard me read uh, Romans eight twenty-nine variety of times, but it's just because there is so much theology packed into that one verse, and certainly eternal security is one of those things. And so Paul, after saying his Um, that everything works out for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. He says, those whom He predestined, He called. Those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. It's put in the past tense to communicate something that is certain and in one sense kind of already been over and done with from a matter of ruling on it. And we're going to come back next time and talk about where does the Scripture... um, what, where does the Scripture support the idea that everyone who is truly justified will be raised from the dead and glorified? What is the difference between perseverance as a doctrine and the personal assurance of believers? Two different doctrines. Perseverance, everyone gets to the finish line. Assurance, I have confidence that I will get to the finish line. Okay, One is about a, someone's a personal confidence. The other is about... Uh, uh, about uh, really more or less a, th- a piece of theology, and then we 'll talk about the warnings of scripture, how do warnings make sense if how do warnings to believers make sense if they can 't actually fall away and then we'll reflect on um, we 'll reflect on passages in the New Testament that you know you might you might hear in some of these discussions that seem to suggest someone who is a Christian. You know, apostatize and oh, that, see that disproves the doctrine. So we'll, of course, we'll present the view, then we'll answer objections, just like we have in the other sections. Let's uh, let's close in prayer. God, uh, thank you for this time. Um, I pray that it is helpful for these listening ears, not just again as an intellectual exercise, but something that helps ground them in the truth, helps them feel more comfortable in the shoes they wear. In one sense, and pray that. Um, what happens what has happened your day would, would spur more conversation people would ask more questions um, think through these things more critically and be assured in the faith making their own calling and election sure pray that you would be with us during our next hour of worship in the name of jesus amen